Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 227th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Today, we have a very knowledgeable guest and fellow therapist who is a parent to teens and is a therapist to teens. She is also an author and wrote Your Amazing Teen Brain that is written for teens, but is good for moms as well. If you have a teen that can get lost in big feelings and get caught in negative automatic thoughts, this book will help them understand their brain and give them tools to change their brain in a positive way. And there are some great studies that indicate that teens through effortful work can increase their IQ. Let me introduce you to Elisa Nebelson. In addition to her clinical work, Elisa serves as an adjunct faculty at the Beck Institute in Philadelphia and at Catholic University's Graduate School of Social Work. Additionally, Elisa teaches and consults on cognitive behavioral therapy and clinical practice with children and adolescents both locally and nationally. Elisa earned her master's degree in clinical social work from Smith College, and she has been working with kids, teens, and young adults for the past 25 years. She has been featured in publications ranging from Atlantic to NPR and has been named a Washingtonian DC top therapist in multiple categories. So welcome, Elisa. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yes, yes. Two therapists talking about a subject that I love, so it's going to be great. Absolutely. So the question I ask all my moms and all my speakers is, do you have kids? I have three kids. I have a 15-year-old daughter, a 17-year-old son, and a 19-year-old daughter. All right. 
So you can definitely talk about the amazing teen brain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And often it is amazing. Not always, but often. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's, <laughs> oh my gosh, that teenage brain. Yes. So, yes. That you feel as a mother. So why did you write this book? You know, I, <laughs> I'm old enough that when I was in grad school, I don't know if this is true for you, we didn't know any of this information right, about the brain. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I don't think I had one course on the brain in graduate school. Right, me, I didn't either. Yeah, and so as I've started learning more about it, it's really exciting. It explains a lot. It, it kind of demystifies some of the, the things we know are true in adolescence, um, but we couldn't really name. And I like that for kids because so often the kids come in and they feel, they feel ashamed. They feel like this is something that's wrong with them. They feel like it's unique to them. And if we can look at it through science and understand, oh, no, wait, this is just a normal part. And yeah, you do feel things more. And that's not really your choice or your fault, but there are things we can do about it. It just makes it easier. It makes it so it's less, you know, all them and more. We've got things we can work on together. Yeah, it takes the blame and judgment out of it and the shame. And those kids carry so much. Even when they're acting so mean or tough or whatever, you know, it's like, well, what's wrong with me? Right. Yeah. So one question I have is, like, have your kids read the book? Um, have you known other teens who've read your book? And <laughs> what do they think about the book? Because you, you've written it for teens, and I'm sure for parents, too. But Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So my, my kids have definitely read parts of the book. I don't think any of them have read all of the book, you you know, and, but I will, (laughs) this is, this is the awkward part of the, about the therapist mom, when they have their friends over, I definitely will test out chapters on them and (laughs) to them. (laughs) And they're like, no, no. I mean, but they, they have been very much a part of it. Uh, My son just had a a secret Santa with his friends and he gave his friend, I think it was really in jest, a signed copy (laughs) of the book. (laughs) <laughs> which his friend may not have appreciated, but yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's very much a part of what we've been talking about in the family. And I will say, Oh my gosh, do you know why you're acting this way? And they don't always care as much as I would like, but I think they could tell you why they're acting that way. Yeah. So it's very much influenced everything. It's actually been great, especially during COVID because a lot of this writing was when they were all at home all the time. And so I would come upstairs from working on it, just be like, so let's just talk about this. And they were so funny about it. But I think, I think it made a difference. I hope. I hope it did for them. Yes. I think teens will really like this book is why I asked you. Thank I think you. I've seen more teens interested in this. They are interested in the neuroscience. Yeah, I would agree with that. And when I can cite a study to a kid about why something might be happening, it just makes a difference. It makes it more real to them. It's not like I'm, you know, some therapist who's talking about some kind of abstract idea. It's like, well, well, wait, there's like facts on this. There's evidence here. Let's look at that. And how does that work? And that, I, I think it's very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you have in your book are brain hacks, which I like that. I thought those were I fun. got really into those. Thank you. I got into them. So can you share one or two of your favorite? Brain hacks? Yeah, okay. So I, I got really into brain priming. So that's kind of the idea yes. that you can influence your mood by what you're thinking about. So in the book, I think I talk about um, just kind of some studies that were done where people had to watch sad movies and then it, it impacted their creativity or problem-solving abilities. Whereas when they were laughing, 
they had much more creative and much more robust problem solving. I just was looking at a study the other day. This was with the guy, Mark Brackett from Yale, where he was talking about teachers. And if teachers read, they all read the same essay, but before writing, reading the essay, they had to write down five minutes that were the worst in their life in one group or five minutes that were the best in their life in the other group. And then they graded the same essay. And the people who wrote about the worst period of time in their life graded one to two letter grades below the people who wrote about the best time. And, and they didn't believe that they graded differently. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. Wow. Right? I know. Right? And so that for me, we can really, by changing how we think about something, by getting ourselves in different mindsets, which is possible, we can influence, especially at specific and strategic times, how we're going to achieve and produce in that moment. And I think that's really exciting and powerful. It is. And I completely believe everything you're saying. A lot of your book is based off of neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. I said that right. Neuroplasticity. You did, yeah. I know. Congratulations, Colleen. <laughs> so can you explain what that is and the practical implications of this? When I'm talking about it with kids, I mean, so it's basically the idea that our brain can change, that as we learn new information, our brain changes. Um, and trying to explain that to kids is like, yeah, I get it, but what do you really mean? And so I use a visual myself, which is, okay, imagine that this room was filled with snow and it was four feet deep. And imagine that you wanted to get to the other side of the room and you had to dig it out. You had to use a shovel. So the more you dig, the easier it gets. And then you start walking back and forth on the same path that you've dug out. And the more you walk, the easier it is. So you've got this really great path. When we think or do something enough, we create this really lovely neural path. And it's very easy. Our brain loves it. just zips down it. But when we want to change, when we want to create a new path and do something differently, we have to dig out a whole new pathway. And that takes effort and practice but we can do it. And I love that visual because you can imagine stomping down the snow and the effort it's going to take, but it's possible. We can do it. So that's kind of how I described how the brain makes the changes for kids. And that seems to work for them and for parents as well. And it's, it's literally something I use in my head all the time, but it's also really powerful. I mean, our brains can literally change. It's so hopeful. <laughs> it's so hopeful. And the study that, that just I had heard about this study, and I I studied it more when I was writing this, that 2011 nature study that looked at how IQ, I mean, right? Yes, yes, talk about that. How IQ can change, how it can change during adolescence. That I didn't know. So we knew infancy and toddlerhood, like big changes in the brain, neuroplasticity, all sorts of things happening. But we didn't realize that in adolescence, kids can actually increase their IQ. And it, yes. I think it is almost 30% can increase, 30% stay the same, 30% decrease. And, and the kids who are increasing their IQs are deliberately choosing effortful things that they are doing, and they are working their brain harder, like it's a muscle, to create these changes. I was actually just talking with a, a girl about that this morning. I was so excited, and she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, not there with me? She's like, no, I am with, there with you. It's just kind of weird to think about it. And I was thinking, would I at that age have really cared? I don't know if I would have taken advantage of that if I had known it as a teen. But I think this generation will. I think that they get that idea much more than I did at that time, that we can make things better. Now, the other side of that is if you're smoking too much pot, you're drinking too much, you're just screened out all the time, you can actually decrease your IQ, which is terrifying. 
Yeah. Right. But to think of like that level of plasticity of possible change. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, and that goes to that, like a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And so I think both of you and I talk to teens. So a lot of teens think that they're stupid or they can't do it. And so when you say, yeah, so here's the good news is like, you're not, you can actually, if you just do this, it's possible. I think a lot of kids just give up because they just think they don't have it. And they think that there's just smart kids and they're just the kids that aren't smart. Right. Do you see that? I do. And my first book was on grit and it was written for, for younger kids. And it really looked at, I mean, that's the heartbreaking part for me is that we know so clearly again from research from Angela Duckworth that that the change isn't about natural innate talent, you know, that that's a small part of it, that it really is about the effort, the practice, the repetition, the time, the duration we've put into it. And I worry it gives us all an easy way out if we just say, oh, I'm too stupid. I can't do it, you know, and that fixed mindset stuff. Yeah. See that all the time. I will say the schools are teaching that more. I've been really surprised at how many kids coming into therapy have a real, you know, a cursory knowledge of Carol Dweck's work. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. So can you talk about, you had one section that said CBT, the PFC, which is clever, Thank and you. you. CBT, you. the PFC, and you. Can you talk about that? Well, this, okay, so I'm going to cite a study that I don't know the actual study. So this was at a conference I was at not long ago, and a, a guy from memory was talking about how CBT works top down and how medication works bottom up. And I thought that was so fascinating. Mm. I mean, that really made sense to me. And so it's, you know, so much of what CBT does, kind of this idea that how we think affects what we do and that affects um, how we feel and, and what we do affects how we think and how we feel. So much of that was, was come up, you know, Dr. Beck developed that well before we knew what we know about the brain, but it does seem to affect the PFC much more than it does going back into the limbic system. And it, it creates those connections. One of the issues with the teen brain is we don't have as many connections going. So CBT is like perfect because it's really helping build connections between our, our more fiery limbic system and our, our PFC, which can kind of problem solve and think things through. So it's, it's a beautiful fit. I was very surprised and pleased at how well they work together. Yeah, no, it is yeah. perfect. I actually never thought about that consciously until I read your book, but it oh, completely yes. makes sense. It does, and that they, they that CBT came about without any of that knowledge. It's yes. so cool, right? Yes, yeah. it is. So you tell teens that their emotions feel bigger and that their feelings lie. So can you explain <laughs> what that means? <laughs> Those are two different, yes. So, okay, Lauren Steinberg at Temple is this great researcher on adolescence. And there was this video I was watching of him giving us a talk somewhere. And he said somewhere, he's like, the teen brain feels everything so intensely. And he said it with this great emotion. And it was, it really hit me. I mean, as you look at this, our, the dopamine levels are higher. Everything is higher. You're seeking risk. The, the reward feels bigger. Everything feels huge. And so I can remember during that time, things feeling catastrophic, you know, that really weren't or things that, that felt like, oh my gosh, the best thing in the world. And it just kind of faded away. I think we mostly can, right? We all can remember those times. Teen, being an adolescent, you feel deeply, but if they knew this is an anomaly, this is a period of life when you're going to feel this so much, but this isn't forever. And these feelings may not be accurate. If you can fact check them a little bit, it will do you a lot of good. 
and I mean, we, we talk about that a lot with anxiety and CBT or, or different things where something just because it feels true doesn't mean it is. So what are the facts behind this? So it feels so good to, you know, do whatever risky behavior you're doing, but what are the facts there and how could this hurt you and how could this help you? So trying to bring in a little more of that PFC part to calm down this flood of emotions that's not their fault, but is nonetheless very real. Yes. So for the moms listening, what are some of those questions that these teens can ask themselves to fact check? Well, okay. So before I would answer that, but first there was a great study that looked at driving. And if you drove without a parent in the car, you ran more yellow lights. If you drove with a parent in the car, you totally stopped. But if you just even imagined your mom sitting next to you or a police officer, you had the same response of stopping more, which is... I, think I cool. love so, it. I love isn't it. Isn't it funny, right? So one is they can imagine that. But the questions that you can ask here, just because this feels true doesn't mean it is. How much do I believe this right now? How much will I believe this in two hours, in two days? What are the facts that support this feeling? And, and just breaking it down step by step. You know, it's like if, if I had an example of, you know, I'm trying to think of something. I have to go to this party tonight because everyone's going to be there. And if I don't, I will so miss out. Okay. I mean, there's, there is a lot of social pressure in adolescence and that's something I talk about a lot. In fact, uh, you know, there's a, a wonderful book called Wildhood where they talk about the four tasks of adolescence being safety, status, sexuality, and independence. But that status, I mean, that comes up again and again. And, and there was one study that looked at adolescent wildebeest. And if you paint the horns of juvenile wildebeest, the hyena will go after the painted horn once first. I mean, there is real risk to being different, to not, you know, fitting yeah. in with your peers. So there's this party, it's happening. There's real risk to this kid in their mind. But I would probably ask, you know, well, what's the worst that could happen? What's the best that could happen? How likely is it to happen? And I would go through the facts on it. Adolescents are dumb. In fact, they're remarkably bright. It's just that the emotions distort things. So if you can yes. have calm, preventive conversations, that goes a long way towards preventing the blowups that come later. I think if we can do things more preventively with fact-based questions and trust, right? And trust yes. because they are going to make mistakes. There's just no way around that. And, and they do have to make mistakes. Yeah. So a couple things about that is... Around fact-checking, I find it's really helpful to quantify things like because teens tend to be in the lower part of the brain, the reactive part of the brain, it's really black and white, you know, all or nothing thinking. So it's like, I don't have any friends. And so it's like, well, let's look at that or, you know, oh, everyone, great. Yeah, everyone's going to be there. So who's everyone? Good. Yes. You're, that, those are beautiful, right? Yeah. Yeah. So wait a minute. Like last weekend, you went out with four people. Now, are those your friends? So just helping quantify helps a lot. But you also did that in this beautiful, non-judgmental way, right? I, yeah. You could see where it's so easy, at least for me as a parent, to get judgy. Like, oh, really? Are they your friends? Right? But you did it in this way that kind of pulled back and it wasn't totally emotion-ridden. And it was like, let's look at this objectively. And that was perfect, right? That's what we've got to do with kids. Yeah. And so I would say a trap for moms is <laughs> that I've fallen into, which is why I wrote my book. It's so hard for moms to see their kids to do distortions, cognitive distortions. And so, and it's so painful to watch them think that 
they don't have any friends, and they're getting really upset about this cognitive distortion. And I've had so many moms tell me that they would go in their room, like wanting to cheer their kid up. And then they would get so frustrated at their kids that they would end up yelling at them. Oh, I can totally see that, right? You go yeah. in with the best of intentions. Yeah. But that that's a great one because it's, I don't have any friends. No one likes me. I'm here alone again. I'm always alone, right? That kind of yeah. language. And there, you know, that actually does get fairly self-defeating, those narratives that we tell ourselves. And as a mom, it's really hard to be like, that is just totally false, right? That's what you want to say. But yeah. I think if you can step into it like you did, well, okay, tell me about that. Who are the people you sit with at lunch? Who have you hung out with in the past couple of weeks? And kind of break it down in that more methodical and fact-based way. That's really nice. Yeah. It's so hard not to get emotional, especially when they're hurting, right? Yeah. So the tool here, mom, is if we can use more fact-checking tactics with our teens, it's going to go better. It's uh, Instead of we getting like hooked in the emo- their emotions and then we emote back right? Oh yeah. I always, I do this with kids where when, when they're dealing with anger, I always say, okay, tell me I'm stupid. And they're like, no, no, no. But then they do it. Right. And they say, no, you're stupid. And then they look at me and they go, oh my God, you're so stupid. And it's kind of showing like you throw that anger and we just watch it blow and blow and blow. And so it's that piece of, if somebody tells me I'm stupid, I've got to hold on what's going on here. But it's yeah. so easy just to go back at that emotion and we end up blowing it up by doing that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why it is such an instinctive response that we all struggle with. Right. Which brings me to the next question. It is, can you talk about what name to tame means? Oh, that's really interesting research. So the idea is that we have to know what we're feeling. And this is Michelle Kraske at, at UCLA, who's done so much work with this. And her study that she looked at was, you know, disgusting, hairy spiders. And the idea was, how do we get people to face their fears to touch these spiders? And there were different techniques. And what she found was the people who were able to say, I am so scared. This is really freaking me out. I do not want to do this. I'm touching it. Oh, I'm scared they were much more able to touch the spider, the people who named their feeling states. But naming how you feel is enormously difficult. I mean, especially with big feelings. We get caught up in a myriad of different experiences and it's hard to sort it out. There's actually an app from the Mark Brackett, the Yale guy called Mood Meter that I use a lot with kids that breaks feelings down by color. So it's almost like, you know, like a paint strip. So it's variations. And we will track moods on there a couple of times a day and we start to see patterns that emerge because naming your feelings sounds easy, but it's so hard. Mostly kids will just say, oh, I'm good. I was fine. I was bored. You know, and, and if we can get more into the nuanced feelings, we understand more of what's going on. That comes out of this idea of, you know, language is how we make sense of things as humans. And the two-year-old who has a temper tantrum, they don't have the language to say what's going on, but we do. And if we can use that frontal part of our brain, right, that PFC piece, to explain our feelings, to name them, we actually manage them much more efficiently. Yeah. And that so fits into um, Brene Brown's new book, The Atlas of the I, Heart. I haven't read it. I have it, but I haven't read it good. Well, <laughs> I've just been listening to the podcast too. So I have it. I haven't read it either, but... I know it's like sitting there. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I mean, that's kind of the whole point of her book too, I think, is helping people have language for the more nuanced emotions. And you're right. When these teens can name these emotions, it just opens up in a, a pathway to, to have conversation. A lot, yeah. a lot of times they're just locked into a huge emotion in their bodies. And they, they have, like you said, they don't have words. 
I don't know if you see this with your teen girls in particular, but I get a lot of them. And I feel like this has been more of late where they really shut down into the emotion so they can feel a stomach ache. They can feel physical distress, but they don't really know what they're feeling or if they're really feeling anything. It's it's like almost like this pushing down of emotion. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. And then mm-hmm. we see it coming out in panic. We see it coming out in anger, like all these different ways. And it it's so destructive and it's so, it's hard to get out of the habit of that. I've just seen more and more kids, particularly girls who are just kind of stuffing those emotions in. And then when we can finally dig them out, they feel better, but it's not instinctive somehow. And I don't know what's going on with that. I've been really curious about that um, in the last year or two. And don't you think it's been worse since COVID? I've seen it be, right? COVID. I mean, I've been doing this 25 years. COVID, uh, it's hard to put into words what it did to kids, right? It's just devastating. Yeah. I have seen, I've heard really, really hard stories after COVID with girls, especially. Oh, we saw eating disorders increase. We saw depression. I mean, Suicidal ideation, cutting, yeah, loneliness. Yeah. Developmentally, they were, no kid should have been so isolated. And I don't know how we would have done it differently, but I, I hope we, we would in the future because the cost has been, anyone in our field has been seeing this since then. And now the parents, now I'm seeing the parents come in, just they've held it together for their kids, but they're just overwhelmed. Like, how do I do this anymore? It's too much. Right, right. Right. So, okay. Another question is how can CBT help, especially with negative automatic thoughts, which what we were kind of hinting at. Right. So negative automatic thoughts are the thoughts that are just below the the surface of our awareness and that reflect something about how we feel about ourselves. So, you know, if we, we don't always notice them, but when we start catching them, we start to find patterns. So I might think, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so stupid. I'm never going to get this right. Or I, I can never pass this test. I don't do well on math tests. I don't do well at this. They start to become kind of self-perpetuating and they're a little more insidious because we don't, we don't name them. We don't catch them and pull them um, because they're just right there. But if we look for them, we can find them. It's kind of that thing of you learn a new word and suddenly you see it everywhere. You know, it's like when we start looking for something, we can find it. So if we can train ourselves to catch these thoughts and record them, just write them down in the notes section of your phone, whatever you want, we can start to look for the patterns and then we can start to change them. And, and changing them isn't, I'm going to get an A on every test. It's, it's saying, I have control here. You know, I have choices. I have studied. I've done this. It's looking at that brain priming part as well. And kind of bringing this back to create a different narrative of how we're going to approach this and how we're going to approach ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think of the B part of CBT. So if, you know, your teen is, I'm thinking for a teen boy is I just can't do sports and I'm too thin and I, I can't measure up to these other boys. He's going to behave differently when he walks down the hall. There's it, right? hundred percent, right. So in CBT, we talk about this kind of circle of feelings on top, thoughts to the side or triangle, sorry, feelings, thoughts, and then behaviors. So if, if my thoughts are, I stink. I can't do sports. I'm no good. 
my behaviors are, I'm going to kind of remove myself from that a little bit. I'm not going to compete in the same way. I'm not going to try as hard because I'm going to look really dumb and I don't want to do that. And that's going to lead to the feelings and my feelings are going to be sad or embarrassed or ashamed. And then it perpetuates and it kind of keeps going around and around and making my thoughts bigger and, and my behaviors bigger. So with CBT, we intervene either at the thought level or at the behavior level. So if I can't change my thoughts, if I'm trying and I keep coming back to, I'm, I'm just terrible, I'm not going to do it. And maybe I go after behaviors and, and behaviors then become that, that grit piece of how do I practice this? How do I change this? You know, looking at the stories like um, Carol Dweck wrote about, everyone seems to know this, but me, Michael Jordan, I guess, got cut from his high school team. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Okay, thank you. You're the only other person. <laughs> and so he, like, his mom's like, get up at 5.30 in the morning. And he started practicing and practicing. I mean, it goes into... I can change my behaviors and there are models for how to do this. And then if I'm doing that in the morning, I actually am going to feel a little bit more confident. That's probably going to reflect a little bit more in how I carry myself. And then my thoughts start changing a little bit, or I can go in and try and change my thoughts to change my behavior. It kind of depends on the person and the easiest way to get access. Yeah. Yeah. And so that goes back to what you're helping teens with. And I, what I help teens with is the naming, the self-awareness this is what this is. This is what I've been thinking. That's such a good point because so much of this happens unconsciously, yes. right? We just aren't even aware of these patterns that we're creating. Yeah. All right. So I got really excited when I read the section, use your stress. So I might geek out on you a little bit, but so can you explain what the challenge response is? And then you say, the difference between fight, flight, freeze, and the challenge response is literally a difference in chemicals. Well, this is, have you read Kelly McGonigal? Are you familiar uh -uh. with her mm -mm. work? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's the Stanford researcher. I don't know if she's a researcher or a public health person. She wrote this wonderful book, The Upside of Stress. And it, <laughs> I read it and I was like, Oh my gosh, it was one of those books you read and you think, okay, well, this changes everything. Because what she started looking at is the history of stress in our country. And I mean, this is one of the fascinating things. In like um, the 2000s, APA, the American Psychological Association, was saying that, that most people reported a medium level of stress. I might be getting this wrong, but they were okay with that. That was pretty okay. And then when they reported the same amount of stress in 2018, it was pre-COVID, it was really problematic for them. It was the same amount of stress, but their perception changed. We started to view stress as more harmful. And, and in fact, the word stress is insidious, right? It's everywhere mm -hmm. and so much a part of our culture. And what, what Dr. McGonigal started looking at was all of the research on stress. And you know, stress is actually pretty helpful a lot of the time. And if we change our mindset about it, we can really change how we react. She looked at a, another researcher, Aliyah Crum, who I think is at Columbia, the most interesting mindset study. So it was like housekeepers in New York City. And one group of them didn't change anything. And the other group were told that if they did this, this work, this kind of the work they normally do, that that actually was cardio and weightlifting and that it would probably make them feel better and it would probably help their physical health. And at the end of the study, the group that had the intervention had lowered their blood pressure, had lost weight, doing the same things. So it's like the stress of the job transformed into something that was meaningful and that was giving them benefits. I mean, it was like studies like that that she used that were fascinating. So what she really talks about is stress is useful, but we have to believe it's useful. 
we have to say to ourselves, this can help me. I mean, there's some types of stress that are not useful at all, obviously. But, but if we can channel into that stress and try and make it work for us, it's super helpful. Do you mind if I go into another study? Am I going into nope, it too many? No, go for it. Okay. Yeah, go. So another one, and I think it's in her book, is it was a Ohio emergency room. And people had been in car accidents. And researchers tried to predict whether or not the people would get PTSD later. So PTSD take the month for the diagnosis. And they looked at stress hormones in their urine. And they could predict the people who had the lowest levels of stress hormones in their urine at the time of the accident were more likely to get PTSD, which I was like, wait, what? Because we have to feel it because we had to feel it. We had to name it. We had to experience it. So the highest levels of stress at the time were actually good. That was a beneficial response for our body to try and work through. And so it's really trying to reframe how we look at stress. That's crazy. It is crazy. It's very exciting too, because we can really do it differently. Yes. Okay. So where I want to geek out yes. is there the stress where you're giving yourself the talk like this is terrible and this is going to end badly throws us into the stress response of fight, flight, freeze. And are you saying that if you have a certain amount of stress and you say, this is really great for me, that you can not go there and get yes. better, better chemicals? Yes. And, okay. and I mean, okay, sorry. Yes, you, that, you had asked that and I didn't even go there. <laughs> Yes. I mean, that was where I was tap dancing around my room. So, so right. talk more about that. Well, I mean, even one thing where just saying to yourself, I'm so excited when you're really nervous is helpful because the stress hormones for excitement and for nervousness are very similar. There's similar levels of arousal. So we can change how our body reacts to that. Mm-hmm. We can, using our mind, change how our body perceives it and get more of the energy, the increased concentration, the increased performance that we get from good stress just by changing how we think about it. And with a, yeah, sorry. Well, no, I have an example for today. It's like I okay. had, I had like four big meetings today and I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's just so much. It's so, so many big meetings today and it's going to be overwhelming. I read that. And I thought, no, it is exciting because actually every one of those is fun. And just changing that, I felt way different. I do that all the time when I'm like, oh, how many appointments do I have today? And then I'm like, wait, what am I going to learn? What am I going to, you know, it sounds so silly, but it is seriously exciting. And it changes how you approach things. And life becomes more fun and exciting. Well, and you don't overdose on cortisol. No. And there is, I don't know if you saw that brain hack, this Jill Bolte-Taylor brain hack. Yes. If you are overdosing on cortisol, you actually can change that too. So every 90 seconds, we reset. And so if we are in a total stress response, if we can start to do the breathing, change our thinking, we can stop that from um, kind of repeating and repeating and repeating. Yes, that was great. That was a great brain hack. Isn't that neat? I mean, that's where there's so much that if we know we can do it differently and life feels better. Yeah. It's not that hard. So you might've just said this because I was so excited about what you're saying, but I'm just going to repeat it. So, so moms, sometimes we'll just go into a stress response. And what she's saying is that would last 90 seconds and we can ride through that stress response, but then we can change that or change our story about it and actually get ourselves out of that stress response instead of keep saying the same things to ourselves over and over and over again 
right? Yes. You turn off the continual release of those hormones. How crazy and cool is that? That is so cool. So cool. So cool. Oh my gosh. So what was the best thing that you learned from writing this book? You know, for me, it was that nature study. It really was. It was that that teens can increase their IQ through effortful learning. I also was fascinated with how teens learn and, and how hard it is to learn. You know, my kids are always like, oh, no, I reviewed the material. But what I learned was effortful learning isn't just reading notes. It's really about the process of remembering. So you learn it once, and that's great, but you don't really remember it. But when we effortfully pull back and retrieve those memories is when it gets stored. I mean, inside out did this so well. I just didn't catch it at the time. And, and I was just so excited about that. For me, that's something that's how I learned now too. It's really changed how I approach that. I don't think my IQ is getting any higher. I may be late for that, <laughs> <laughs> but it helps with my learning. Well, I could talk to you forever, but is there me any too. last advice do you have for moms listening? You know, yeah. I really found that if I could celebrate my kids' brains a little bit more, if I could celebrate the intensity and the awesomeness, the amazing part of their brains, it was nice for me. Because instead of being like, oh my gosh, you did what? I was like, no, 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 <laughs> this is a normal part of this. And it, it made it, it's making it easier for me, yeah. which I really like because, you know, like you and I were talking about before, our kids aren't with us as long as we would like. And they go off and have their lives. And I really want to enjoy this time with them right now. And it's easier if I know why they're doing what, and it makes more sense to me. Yeah. Well, I think about Dan Siegel's work where he talks about essence. Do you remember that? No. Well, he talked about that the the very things that can drive us nuts about teens, the flip side of it is what we need to have as adults to be vibrant adults. So, So an essence is an acronym for emotional spark, social engagement, novelty and creative exploration so my example wonderful isn't that wonderful yeah so so like with my daughter she's like oh my god i'm gonna go see this concert oh my god Ah, i'm so excited and i might say yeah i'm gonna go to a concert Right, <laughs> right, right. Like right. we could use a little more enthusiasm. We could. It's so much. It just makes life more fun and exciting. I'm so yes, with you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But they would judge us for it. They will judge us. For it. <laughs> oh, that's okay. We'll feel good in the meantime. <laughs> All right. So you have this wonderful book called Your Amazing Teen Brain, CBT and Neuroscience Skills to Stress Less, Balance Emotions and Strengthen Your Growing Mind. And you really wrote it for teens, right? Yes, I did. And it, is, but, it should be, I mean, they, it is written at their level and it, it should make sense and be understandable at that age. And I would say moms read the book too, because you'll learn a lot. And it's interesting. It's fun. It's not like, oh my gosh, what's she talking about? So it's, thank it's, you. It's really interesting. So where can they get the book? You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, New Harbinger, any of those places. Okay. And if people want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Um, my website is CBT, Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Kids. And it's just, there's all kinds of links on there. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. Oh my I gosh. I really appreciate it. It was so fun. I love talking with so you. It was so fun. It was, this was like <laughs> exciting, right? Yes. I yes. I totally did. Yeah. yeah. So fun. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're so welcome. And I'm, I'm going to pre-order your book. I'm going to look for that. Is it on Amazon now? 
Yeah, actually it is. Pre-order well, my book. And I'm moms, you can it, pre-order my book too. It's Dial Up the <laughs> Dream. Totally good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my oldest, I got to do it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.